Good morning, friends. Let's uh, turn to the Psalms. Let's go to Psalm 85 in the back of your hymnal. Psalm 85 on page 814. We'll pray this responsively, and uh, James and Caleb are passing out handouts as as we prepare. Um, y'all can put any extras back there in the sound booth, the ledge there would be great. Let's pray Psalm 85 responsively. You showed favor to our land, O Lord. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. Restore us again, O God, our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? I will listen to what God the Lord will say. He promises peace to his people, his saints. But, not let, but let them not return to folly. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Father in heaven, we give you thanks um, for this day, for this Lord's Day, the opportunity to gather again as your people in your presence, as you draw near to us to renew um, your covenant with us again um, this day, Father, as you come to restore us and to um, forgive our sins, to instruct us in your word, and to give us even the gift of your Son as we feed upon him in the supper. And Father, this morning we pray that by your Spirit you would grant us wisdom as we study um, the topic of sexuality and what it means um, for love and faithfulness to meet together, for righteousness and peace to kiss, um, Father. Um, Give us um, all of these things. Give us wisdom, Father, most of all, as we 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 consider um, these matters. We pray it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Um, So we are continuing a um, series on the General Assembly Human Sexuality Human Sexuality Report, which is printed in uh, this uh, book that I've distributed to you all. If anyone needs a copy um, that you didn't get one, um, let me know. I've got a few extras that I'd be happy to um, um, to, to hand out um, if you need them. Um, so we have worked so far through the kind of introduction to the report, the preamble. Um, we've talked about what are General Assembly Study Committee reports, how they function, how they come about in the life of our church. And um, two weeks ago, um, we began to consider the first of the 12 statements that the committee made um, about marriage um, and sexuality and all the different topics that they're considering in this report. Um, last week, of course, we had a, a guest speaker from MA, from Mission in North America, talking about disaster response and that ministry within our denomination. Um, So today we return to those 12 statements, and we're going to take up um, uh, the first one again. We made it about halfway through um, a couple weeks ago before we uh, ran out of time. Um, So this first statement is about marriage. Um, Before we jump into that, though, any any questions, anything that has come to mind in in past week's discussions that you all want to talk about before we jump in to material here? Anything at all? Okay, so they um, begin with the statement on marriage, and I'll just read the first paragraph here. Uh, We affirm that marriage is to be between one man and one woman, and they cite Genesis 2, uh, the creation account, um, Adam and Eve, Matthew 19, where Jesus deals with the question of marriage and divorce and quotes from Genesis 2, as well as our Westminster Confession of Faith, um, which has a chapter on marriage, which I would commend to you, chapter 24. Um, sexual intimacy, they say, is a gift from God to be cherished and is reserved for the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Um, but a quote from Proverbs 5, of course, there's lots of other places in the scriptures you could go to talk about the kind of delight that is to exist in 
the marriage between a man and a woman, that this is a gift from God that he's given us um, to enjoy and to, um, to delight in. Um, it is sexual intimacy is properly named as, as a gift, um, not as a curse, and that's important for us to say that clearly. Uh, marriage was instituted by God for the mutual help and blessing of husband and wife for procreation and the raising together of godly children and to prevent sexual immorality. And then they quote from uh, Genesis 1, uh, Malachi 2, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, and um, Westminster uh, 24. Um, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the idea that marriage is an office that is a kind of, uh, you're, setting up, you're being set apart. It's a kind of... Um, it's a calling. It's not something that you create, right, because of your love for one another, but it's something that is created uh, because of the vows that you take before God and witnesses. Um, and so and we talked about this idea that, that when you enter into marriage, you're entering into a vocation, a calling, um, um, something that is, uh, uh, it's like a mantle that you put on and you wear, um, and you can't just take it off. Um, we talked about divorce and how uh, the, our confession, and we believe the scriptures clearly teach that divorce is not something that's up to any one person or any one married couple, um, but only uh, the church has the freedom, the authority to really um, free people from the vows that they've made, to free them from that calling, from that mantle of being a married person. Um, it's, it's something that is bigger than you, is the point. I'll also say that I, I wish that um, a they, they're basically just following the confession here, and I think the confession um, should probably include something about this, but it's interesting, um, Genesis 1, 28, that verse that they quote there, it's not only, of course, about um, raising children or, or populating the world, um, it also, so, and God blessed them, and God said to them, as Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, um, but it doesn't stop there, right? It's interesting. And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Um, here they talk about marriage being for procreation and the raising of godly children, but it seems like they could have also put a, a clause in there about taking dominion over the earth. Um, it seems to me that that is one of the central purposes of marriage um, specifically. Um, it is to be an aid um, to the kind of dominion taking, the kind of culture building um, that the Lord envisions for humanity at its very creation. So that's just a, just a little thought, something that we could have, maybe the committee could have added there. Any questions about any of that? That first paragraph, we've already covered it, but just anything outstanding still? Okay. So marriage also, the committee writes, is to be a God-ordained picture of the differentiated relationship between Christ and the church. And there they quote from Ephesians 5 um, and then Revelation 19. And, and of course, we know this um, from the scriptures that marriage begins to, it takes on this, um, this greater meaning. Um, it becomes a picture of the way in which God relates to his people. And it's important there that differentiated relationship between Christ and the church is important. Um, it's important that the man and the wife joined together in marriage, made one flesh, uh, be not the same as one another, but different. Um, that there be a distinction even as they're united together. Um, and that, of course, is uh, important in terms of the symbolic picture that marriage creates of Christ and his church, who are different from one another, and yet united together um, by the Spirit in the consummation um, that we look forward to in the new creation. Um, there is that union between Christ and his church that is pictured in marriage. And so it's not, in the, one of the points, that we have many things we could talk about there, but one of the obvious um, ramifications of that is that it is important for theologically, um, uh, liturgically, it is important for uh, marriage to be between a man and a woman and not a man and a man or a woman and a woman. Because in those um, scenarios, you do not have that same kind of differentiated and yet united uh, relationship that, that marriage is supposed to embody and give a picture of. Make sense? Okay. Any questions about that sentence or thoughts? Okay, so they've already stated that sexual intimacy is a gift from God to be cherished um, in marriage, but then they make a, 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 another statement that talks about all other uh, forms of sexual intimacy. So all other forms of sexual intimacy 
including all forms of lust and same-sex sac- sorry same same-sex sexual activity of any kind are sinful and then they quote from Leviticus 18 and 20:13 Romans 1 18 to 32 1 Corinthians 6 9 1 Timothy 1 10 Jude 7 and then they reference Westminster larger catechism 139 um, it, I think it's worth just taking a moment, and uh, these references that they pull out here are primarily um, connected to um, same-sex sexual activity. Um, of course, as they've said, um, the scriptures forbid all forms of sexual intimacy um, between um, any human persons outside of um, uh, marriage, regardless of their of their sex. Um, but Given, given the topic of this report, they're focusing, of course, on homosexuality in, in particular. So Leviticus 18, verse 22, the Lord says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And then in 2013, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Um, so both men are um, sinful in that scenario. Um, then Romans 1, 18. So that, of course, that's the Old Testament there. And then it's important to say that the New Testament um, also affirms and confirms um, the Old Testament's prohibition on um, same-sex activity, sexual activity. Romans 1, 18. I'm going to skip down here to 26. Romans 1, 26. For this reason, God, and because of the idolatry um, that humanity was involved in, uh, worshiping the creator, the creature instead of the creator. For this reason, Paul says, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations for women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Um, that's a really um, significant passage in the New Testament talking about um, the sinfulness of same-sex sexual activity. Um, uh, Paul is about as clear, I think, as he could be um, in that statement about the sinfulness of, of homosexual behavior. And, and it's important to say this um, because there is, within the broader church, um, not in the PCA, but within the broader church, there is debate over, you know, does the New Testament really mean to exclude um, homosexual behavior? Um, or is it talking about something else somehow? And of course, there are a bunch of hermeneutic kind of moves I think that you have to make um, in order to get to that place. Um, but, but Paul is very clear um, about the, the, um, the sinfulness of these things and, and even, as he puts it here, um, the unnaturalness of um, same-sex um, sexual activity. Um, he expands on this in 1 Corinthians 6. First Corinthians 6, 9, Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Um, and as the ESV notes in its footnote, um, that phrase, men who practice homosexuality, that's how it's phrased, translated in the English in the ESV, is actually two Greek terms. Um, there's the ESV, my ESV Bible at least, and probably yours too. It says the two Greek terms translated by this phrase refer to the passive and active partners in consensual homosexual acts. Um, so both parties are at fault. Both parties are in sin. Um, that's the, the point that, that Paul wants to make here. And he does it explicitly. And the interesting thing to see there is that, um, as is noted in the footnote in your handout that also appears in the report itself, 
Paul actually coins one of those terms. I'm not going to pronounce it probably correctly. Um, Arsenokoitai. Arsenokoitai. Um, is a, is a Greek term that Paul essentially coins. He, he puts it together from other root words um, to describe um, the active um, participant in a homosexual um, sexual act. And, and it's important to say that, that Paul does this so that he can name that specifically as sin. Um, he does that on purpose. Um, and this is because, this is really important to know and understand as you think about the context of the New Testament, um, that within the New Testament, as I say here in the italicized portion of your handout, um, it's important to notice the radical nature of the New Testament sexual ethic in the context of the Greco-Roman culture of its time. Um, this is a, a, a paragraph that's quoted later in the Human Sexuality Report, the same committee report, one of the more extended essays. They write, in the Greco-Roman world, and they write accurately, I would say, this is backed up by, this is not debatable by historians, this is just the way it was. In the Greco-Roman world, it was understood that while respectable women had to be virgins at marriage and could have sex with no one but their spouses once they were married, husbands and all males were expected to have, like not just, it was just, it was just what you did if you were a, a Roman uh, male, um, at that time, who had any kind of power or privilege. Um, this is how you were expected to have sex with servants and slaves, with prostitutes, with poor women and boys. Um, and so your sexual activity would include uh, both men and women, only men who were sort of lower down on the social scale than you were. Um, but you could participate in those acts and it, you know, there was no, all, all the language that we have today of, you know, homosexual orientation and heterosexual orientation, those concepts didn't exist, right? It was just, you just got to do with your body whatever you wanted, whatever, um, whatever you wanted. Uh, men could essentially force themselves on anyone below them in the social order. They could have sex with anyone but the wife of another man of status and be considered moral and upright and there was no problem, right? There was no dichotomy, there was no, it's not something you had to hide. Um, your wife expected it if you were a man in this culture with that kind of privilege. You know, as long as you didn't have a sexual relationship with one of her friends, basically, um, you were fine. Um, there, was, there was no problem. And again, the important point when we're talking about same-sex sexual activity is that there was no shame as long as you were um, so to speak, the active, um, the initiator in the homosexual act. There was no problem. Um, it, it didn't make you a homosexual. It just made you a, a man um, in that culture. And that's why it's so important to see that Paul is coining a particular term to identify um, the initiator in a homosexual act um, as specifically sinful, not part of the kingdom of God if you practice these acts. Paul is going out of his way um, to condemn that act um, specifically. And, and that's something that I, I, I just think we, you know, you, it, it's true that within the, cult, within the larger church, um, the, the uh, viability, the righteousness, the um, sinfulness of homosexual acts are debated. But I think an, an honest, plain reading of the New Testament, um, particularly one that includes an understanding of the cultural context, it's impossible. Um, to come to that conclusion, I think, with any, any real integrity. Um, as a, just a reader of a text, um, you, you have to do so many hermeneutical gymnastics um, to end up in a place where you uh, justify um, homosexual sex as being permitted by God. So I know that's, I've just said a lot there, and I've been pretty um, blunt about it, but I think it's important for us to to really understand what Paul is saying here in these, in these texts and how clearly he is speaking um, and how radical what he was saying was within the context of um, the Greco-Roman world, um, to, to not just regarding homosexuality or homosexual acts, um, but any kind of sexual promiscuity outside of marriage, um, that Paul, Paul is condemning that and he's doing so in a way, and this is important for us to, to think about, um, you know, the, the church has often been critiqued 
um, sometimes fairly, sometimes not, as not being a place that values and um, cares for women, right? Um, that's, that's been a critique that's been offered of the church many times. But it's just important to think about how revolutionary that was within the context of the early church, um, that, that Paul is, is primarily here within the context of his culture going after men um, who had this sort of free pass to do whatever they wanted sexually, if, assuming they were men who had some social stature. And certainly wasn't true if you were a slave, um, for example, or you know, someone who was um, really poor. But if you were a man who had some wealth, who had freedom, who had some property, um, you were able to do whatever you wanted um, sexually. Um, and there was this complete double standard in terms of what women were expected to do sexually versus men. And, and it's, I think it's just really important for us to think about that and to wrestle with that, 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 um, that there was a, I mean, even, you know, you think about 1 Corinthians 7, um, the next chapter after this, um, Paul says, um, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. You, if you had been a reader of the first century, you said, well, that makes sense. The husband has authority over the wife of the body or the body of the wife. But then he goes around and he says, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Um, that would have been like, you know, record scratch, right? Wait a second, Paul. <laughs> the wife has authority over the, the, or the body of her husband? Um, you know, in terms of her, her conjugal rights sexually and also implicitly over his body and what it does in relationship to other human persons um, outside of the marriage bed. Um, this was a, a profoundly... Um, different thing, and any historian of the early church will say this is one of the most distinctive and unusual things about Christians, um, was their sexual ethic. The way that they um, practiced sexual ethic themselves, the way that they um, held people to account for breaking that sexual ethic um, in, in the culture of their time, it, 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 was, it, was, a, it was a radical thing um, for the church to hold, um, the kind of sexual ethic that it did. And it's also worth pointing out that this also meant that, you know, almost all non-Jewish converts to the Christian faith in the first century were coming from <coughs> backgrounds of sexual sin, right? Um, that they had been involved in things that were, um, that were sinful um, sexually. And, and that, that is the, those are the kinds of people that the Lord gathered together and built his church with, um, adopting a new kind of way of living with their bodies in the world. Any thoughts or questions about any of that? I know I've just said a lot of things. Yep, Kathina. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, the Christian sexual ethic, if you take it seriously, um, as the scriptures speak of it and as, as we believe and hold um, in our church, it is a radical thing. It is a radical thing in our culture to say to men, you can't watch pornography. Increasingly, it's a radical thing to say to women, you can't watch pornography. I mean, that's one tiny example, but... Um, it's, it is remarkable, even in my lifetime, how not only the prevalence of pornography has increased with the internet, but the social acceptability of it, right? Just the idea that, well, of course you watch porn, right? Where, how else are you going to learn about sex, right? This is just something that people do. Um, and if, if you don't, yeah, maybe I'm like breaking news to you all, some of you, but this, this is the way it is, <laughs> especially if you're, you know, under 30, um, this is the way it is. Um, everyone watches porn. Not everyone. I'm using that word in a, there are, you know, people who push against that. Um, uh, mostly Christians um, or people motivated by other uh, religious um, uh, motivations. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a radical thing, right? Um, it's not at all unusual these days for uh, married or couples who are living together or married couples to watch pornography together. That's just sort of like 
some people do. Um, that's one tiny example we could talk about, of course, the prevalence of cohabitation before marriage, um, um, the, the way that, I mean, just you think about popular culture and movies, or um, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking that this is the where we're at. But like if, you, if there's a virgin character in his 20s on a TV show or a, um, a movie, that person is like mocked, right? It's like seemed to be like this like thing that this like your terrible secret now. I mean, just think about how much this is like where we're at, right? The, the, the embarrassing, terrible thing if you're in your 20s isn't that you have been sexually active, but that you're not sexually active. You've never been sexually, like that's like this like, now you have to like keep that, I mean, I'm not saying it's necessarily all that true everywhere, but that's, that is how it's portrayed culturally, um, that, that not being sexually active into your 20s um, is something that you should be embarrassed about. It means that you're not, you know, you're deficient somehow. And, um, and it, is, it is fascinating to think about how um, different the Christian sexual ethic is than that. Um, the Christian sexual ethic is so radical, um, and it always has been, Kathina, as you've said. It's not just the Greco-Roman world. It's not just uh, the modern, you know, 21st century, late Western world. Um, uh, all across human culture, the Christian sexual ethic is a, is a radical thing. Any other thoughts or questions? Yeah, Jeremy. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, and I think that that link between sex and power um, is one that has always been a part of human culture, and it is one of the most radical things that Christianity does, is that it, in by, in by, giving the kind of sexual ethic that it does, the kind of freedom, and the kind of boundaries that it does. The, it it, it has to do with so much more than just sex is what I want you to see, right? It has to do with the relationship between the sexes. It has the relation between older men and younger men. It has a relation between uh, men, you know, men who are married to women who are not their spouses, right? It reframes, the Christian sexual ethic reframes power dynamics in, in really significant ways um, when it is followed and taken seriously. Um, and because there's always this link between sex and power um, that has, it's just part of how humans interact with one another. So when, when Paul is saying to Timothy, right, um, treat uh, women your own age as sisters, older women as mothers, um, older men as fathers, like that, that's like a radical thing. Um, that's, that, and all of that is predicated on the Christian sexual ethic um, being what it is. Um, do you have a question, Trudy? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, Trudy. I mean, we don't know the answer to that. I think we can speculate some that certainly there would be slaves who would have experienced after um, their conversion would have continued to be, just to be really frank about it, to be raped. Um, by uh, men, right, who had the power to do that in that culture. I mean, that's essentially what we're talking about here. Um, we're talking about um, sexual relationships where there is, there's no freedom to resist, right, and, and there's no policeman to call, right? 
Um, so essentially what we're talking about is in the Greco-Roman culture, just to use the modern language that we use, is we're talking about a culture where men could go around raping people uh, of either gender, um, if, and especially if they were slaves, if they were people who um, were below them on the, the, the social scale. And so I think absolutely there's no getting around the fact that for some Christians, some people who are baptized people, uh, men or women, um, who continued to be slaves after that, they would have continued to be just as vulnerable as they were the week before. Um, and, um, and that's something really to think about, that the, the early church was a place where people were being sexually traumatized and, and the church was ministering to them, you know? Um, and there wasn't, of course, there wasn't shame or condemnation for those people, but I'm, I'm sure it was part of the experience for some uh, people in that, and, and it's worth saying, I mean, this is true, you know, um, in, in other parts of the world where slavery has existed, right, um, including the American um, experience. Um, certainly, um, there are many um, African Christians who, uh, you know, came to these shores, um, became believers, became baptized, but then were raped um, and experienced sexual violence against them um, again and again by uh, those that had the freedom to do that or thought they had the freedom to do that. So th this is, that kind of sexual suffering um, is something that is, it's always been part of the church's experience. Um, and it is today too. I mean, we don't see it in the same way, of course, in our culture today in an ex explicit ways, um, but certainly there are Christians all around the world who experience um, sexual violence against them. Um, and it's, it's part of their experience because that's, that, that really is, it, yeah, I, would, I would argue that in many ways there's not, there's less difference today be, between, like what I describe about the Greco-Roman culture is not some sort of unique thing. Do you know what I mean? For that time period. It really has been the experience for most human beings around the world. Um, that those who are in power, those who are stronger, those who have money, um, usually use that power for their own gratification, including the gratification of their sexual desires. And those who don't have power, um, usually women, usually people who are um, not wealthy, um, people who are you know, just less powerful in general, are treated in ways where they, they are perpetrated against. And this is, this is an experience, and we're, we should be thankful to be in a culture where there are laws against rape. There are laws, I mean, it, not to say that our culture is, you know, perfectly um, follows these things. There's not corruption, those kinds of things. But, but we are, it is a blessing to live in a culture um, that still at least has memories of what it means to live in a Christian way. Um, and it is, in terms of the experience of the human population over the centuries, it, it's unusual to live in a, in a culture like we do. We should be grateful for it. Other thoughts or questions about these things? I mean, largely what I'm wanting us to do, oh, I'm sorry, Kim. Yeah. Yes, that's a very good point, particularly for prostitutes, yeah, mm -hmm. or, or slaves. Potentially, yeah. So Kim was just talking about the um, another thing that we know about, not only because of the church's role in it, but because we read about it um, in um, you know just the the culture of the time um, that babies were often abandoned and left to die um, because they were. Um, well, I'm sure there are all sorts of reasons why that was done, but um, yeah, certainly a big part of that was that. You, prostitution was so um, rife. It was, and you know, something that, um, and and other kinds of of sexual violence and rape and, and unequal um, sexual dynamics. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you, you had no doubt you had many women or many yeah many women bearing children in situations where they had no relationship to the father, right? Because he didn't care about them at all. Um, didn't even pretend to care about them. Which, which is a, yeah, 
I mean, again, it's one of the beautiful pictures of the church, the way that the church entered into those, that, the brokenness, the radical brokenness of that situation and said, the marriage bed is holy, sexual activity outside of marriage um, with any sex is illicit, and we're going to take care of the children that come out of these unions that are um, the profound thing um, that the church did to enter into that. Am I fading in and out a little bit? Um, so anyway, so that, yeah, I, th- I appreciate that, Ken. That's a good connection. Anything else? Well, we, we should be grateful. I think one of the things I want us to see is that um, we, should be, we should be really grateful for what the Bible teaches us about sexuality. It is a, life, it is a life-giving thing, regardless of whether you are married or not. Um, the Christian sexual ethic is, is a, a deeply life-giving um, uh, teaching. Um, and because of the importance of sex, it really does touch on all sorts of areas of life. Um, economics, power, politics, all those things are, are impacted by the way that we think about sex. Um, and, and for what it's worth, this is why, I mean, I'll just say this. Sometimes, right, people talk about, you know, the sexual ethic that we're talking about here is sometimes, um, well, often in our culture viewed as backwards. Fair enough. And sometimes there's this, and, and, and certainly there are some Christians in the United States who, um, who maybe fall into this and deserve some of the feedback they get that, you know, they're sort of obsessed with sex, right? That's all they want to talk about is, is sexual sin. Um, but I do think that we should push back against that some and say, it's okay to talk about sexual sin. It's okay to sec- talk about sexual holiness and even to be accused of being focused on that because of the way in which it impacts everything in a culture. It really does. It makes such a difference in terms of the, the, the culture as a whole, the way that that society thinks about its, its sexual behavior and what is right and what is wrong. Um, it has so much to do with how people live and how they flourish and um, how they construct their society. So I, I want to push back against that accusation, right, and say it is okay for us as Christians to talk a lot about sex because it's actually really important. Um, it's not, you know, that we're just obsessed with what people do in their bedrooms. It's because we think that it actually matters um, in all sorts of ways um, that are far beyond uh, one person's sexual experience. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, Nevertheless, they say, we do not believe that sexual intimacy in marriage automatically eliminates unwanted sexual desires, nor that all sex within marriage is sinless um, necessarily, um, I think is what they're saying there. This is an important thing to say. Um, We come to talk about sexual sin, whether that's um, homosexual desire, whether that's, um, um, you know, opposite sex desire. Marriage doesn't just sort of fix things, right? This is, you know, marriage is a gift. Paul talks about it as a gift for people who struggle with sexual sin. And I think that is absolutely true. Um, And I I want to encourage and and hold up marriage as a a gift from God. Paul talks that way in 1 Corinthians 7, right? Um, But at the same time, we have to be honest and say, if you are, if you are, you know, if you, are, if you are living in a place where you are enslaved to sexual sin before you get married, um, the sexual freedom that you ha- will find in marriage, you know, the, the licit nature of your sexual activity in marriage will not fix um, the ways that you are enslaved to sexual sin. It's just important. I think that's basically what the committee is saying here is that we need to be honest about marriage, that sexual sin continued, that people who are married continue to be sexual sinners. Um, and and it, 
you know, sexual holiness, like any other kind of holiness, is something that you uh, move toward. It's not a, it's not a something that just sort of a switch that flips, right? As soon as you enter into the covenant of marriage, um, every married person comes in with their own um, sexual history and story, um, either of things that they've done or ways that they've been mistreated, or of just who they are as a person. Um, and 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 we we all enter in marriage that way, and and marriage can be such a gift um, for sexual sinners, um, but it is not some sort of, you know, doesn't mean you're never going to sin again sexually. Make sense? Yes, ma'am. Tell me about that. I mean, I'll read it and then you tell me what you mean specifically. But if they cannot, Paul says, exercise, that is unmarried people, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Someone who's who's been promiscuous or been is that what you mean? Yeah. Okay. Um, who has been abused or they've been doing the abusing? They've, they've been abusing. They've been abusing. Got it. Okay. Um, I'm with you now. I see. Yeah, that would be bad. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I don't know, I guess, I mean, I, 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 have you seen that happen or, you know, how would you speak into that? So you're saying someone who has been abusive um, sexually of others, are you thinking about children specifically? Is that what you're talking about here? Just make sure we're on the same page. Okay. So, and yeah, that I have heard of that kind of thing. I've never been involved in anything like that, but. I've heard of that kind of thing happening um, where someone who, um, yeah, has a history of being abusive towards children sexually then is encouraged to marry as a way to sort of gratify their desires, hopefully in a holy way. Um, yeah, I think that's really, I mean, I'm not going to necessarily speak to the question of whether or not a person with that history should ever get married. Um, I think that's a, a separate question. but. The idea that somehow marriage is going to be a, I think that's a misunder, deep misunderstanding of the kind of um, parts of that person that are broken that would lead them to abuse children sexually, right? Because um, the, there's a context there, there's a story, right? There's, there's, there are things that need to be understood that that person needs to understand about themselves. Um, you know, very likely we, it's very likely that that person had experienced sexual abuse as a child themselves from someone else, you know, statistically. Um, and none of those things are going to necessarily be addressed in marriage, <laughs> right? I mean, it's certainly possible that a person like that could get married and in the, in the context of the loving care of the church and, you know, a good counselor and, and all the good, you know, all the things that are leading them into repentance and growth and healing that marriage could be part of that story, um, but it certainly should never be like 
well, you've got this problem here. Let's find you a wife, and then you're good. Like, that would be crazy, to say the least. That would be wicked, I think. Um, that, would, that, would, that would not be protecting children. Yeah. 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 I mean, and there is. I think what we want to do, Donna, is make distinctions between sin that is um, more. I don't know what the word is. Um, I don't know. Normal is the right word, but more that doesn't. It's something that involves children, right? Is a specific thing that should be addressed in specific ways. I think is what I'm trying to say. Right, I know you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any other thoughts? You're talking about the burn with, if it's better for them to marry instead of burn. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. It is, yeah, and I think part of what Paul's doing there is he is trying to, um, he's speaking into a context where you have all this sexual brokenness and sin, um, but you also have pockets of Greco-Roman culture that are responding against that. Um, I think in ways that would be, we would characterize as Christians as being being overly corrective, right? Or basically saying that all sex is bad and really the holiest way to live is to not have sex at all, essentially. Um, and, you know, the Stoics would say things like this sometimes. Other schools of philosophy um, would push back against, you know, sexual behavior. And um, and Paul is kind of trying to enter into that and saying, you know, these things are bad and are killing not only you but your culture but that doesn't mean that people shouldn't get married um, actually marriage is a good thing um, it's not a you know and 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 we know that at times in the church this has been a debated point even um, in some wings of the church today it still is that um, that somehow a, a, a life that is um, without sex is better than a life of married sex um, spiritually and I think Paul really wants to push against that. I, I think that's a, if you come to that conclusion, you're misreading. I think what Paul is saying there. Paul certainly wants to uphold marriage and the goodness of it. Yeah, probably one time for one more. Yeah, later on, Paul will take Paul with things. If you're not married now, don't get married. Um, it, later on in 1 Corinthians 7. Yeah, yeah, and I, I very much agree with that. I very much read 1 Corinthians, especially those parts of 1 Corinthians 7, where he says things like that. Um, to be connected to what Paul knows is going to happen in the next, depending on when you think 1 Corinthians is written, the next 10 to 15 years um, in the world, right? Because Paul believed that Jesus knew what he was talking about. And Jesus had said in around 30 AD, in 40 years, um, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and there will be uh, ramifications for the world um, that will be up, upheaval like no one has ever seen, right? So Paul understood that he was writing into that context. He took Jesus seriously because Jesus took himself seriously and said it about 800 times, right? Um, and so, so Paul is definitely understanding that that's on the horizon, Things are about to get crazy. So 
If you're married right now, it's probably better. If you're married right now, stay married. If you're not married, don't get married. That, I think that's what he means. When he's, he's not giving some sort of like, whenever you happen to read 1 Corinthians 7 in your life, that's where you should stay in terms of your marital status. <laughs> right? I think that would be a misunderstanding of Paul's intentions there. All right, friends. Very good. Let's, uh, let's stand and pray. Lord, we um, are thankful for the fact that we are sexual um, persons uh, created in your image, male and female, um, intended. Um, Lord, we're given this, this gift of sexuality um, that is so um, beautiful um, when it is experienced, um, where the, the kind of intimacy and connection and joy and pleasure that it can give is experienced in marriage, Father, and that, that covenant, that commitment um, between a man and his wife. And yet, Father, we know that um, there's so much potential for harm. Uh, many of us even have been harmed um, in different ways um, by the misuse of um, sexuality, um, the things that others have done to us or things that we ourselves have done um, to ourselves or to others. And so, Father, we um, give you thanks for the ways that you love us um, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our failure, um, the things that we regret, as well as the things that we give you thanks for. And, Father, I pray that you would, even this day, as we, I know this are, these are heavy things we've talked about, um, that we would be assured of the love and forgiveness, of the purity, of the holiness um, that is given to those who are in the beloved, who are sealed in Christ and forgiven of their sin. I pray, Father, that you would grant us these things. I pray that you would, even in the context of our church, not only our individual lives and families, but also just corporately together as a congregation. Father, that you would lead us um, to holiness sexually, um, that we might love one another with the kind of care and intention and affection that you would have for us and respect. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.